Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys. If you have your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews this morning, we're going to kick it up in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Writer of Hebrews tells us this, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do. If God permits, Uh, Hebrews five and six is probably the most difficult passage in the book of Hebrews. It is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And so in light of that, (laughs) let's pray and ask God to help direct us through this passage this morning. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, That no matter the season, no matter the the stretch of time, no matter whether we are in a snapshot of life that is good or that is tearful and difficult. Thank you that you're good and that your character is unchanging, that you are perfect in your ways. And Father, this morning, even as we open your word and wrestle with it and in a sense of how you work and how you respond to situations, Lord, I pray you'd help us to remember that. A passage that will test us, a passage that will stretch our understanding of who you are and how you work. I pray that you'd lead us. I pray that you grant us clarity this morning, that you grant us a sense of uh, its implications and that you would challenge us to walk well with you, not just in this phase of college, but even for a lifetime, that we would walk well with you for a lifetime. Father, Lord, we need you desperately, and I pray that you would lead us, that you'd use my words as you see fit, and that you'd be present in our time this morning, Lord. And in your name we pray, amen. A few years ago, a friend was interested in getting a checkup, his annual checkup, but he, at the time, was a poor grad student, and so he wanted to potentially get this done at cost. Uh, And so he approached a friend who worked at a lab, and he asked his friend if his friend in this lab would be willing to run some blood tests for him at cost. And so his friend said, sure, I'd love to. So his friend ran the blood test and the results came back and, and, my fr- and his friend and his doctor were looking at the results and, cre- and became incredibly concerned because in the four pages of test results that came back from the lab test, realized that this friend had an elevated, uh, let me check this out because this is a medical talk, an elevated beta HCG level, all right? Which to me, I have no idea what that means. I can barely even say it, all right? Uh, but according to my doctor friend, as he's telling, relaying the story to me, that apparently that is the hormone that for women elevates when they're pregnant or for men, elevates when they have prostate cancer. So here was this buddy of mine and his doctor friend looking at the possibilities that either one of two things was true. Either he was a man in his 20s with prostate cancer, or he was the first ever male to be made pregnant, all right? Either way, there was a reason for concern. And so uh, they were trying to figure out what's going on, that a man in his 20s isn't likely to have prostate cancer, trying to figure out what's happening. And so uh, the friend ended up calling his buddy back at the lab and said, hey, this is kind of confusing. We've been looking at the test results. Can you help explain to me what's going on here? And so the buddy said, oh my, I didn't run all of those tests for you. In fact, there's no reason why I looked to find out that hormone level specifically for you. There's no reason I would have done that. And as he looked back, he realized what he had done was as he printed off his buddy's test results, he had used recycled paper. And then on the front of each page was his buddy's results, but on the back of each page was a former patient's results. In this case, a pregnant woman. <laughs> he wasn't pregnant and he didn't have prostate cancer. So what's the point of the story? First of all, recycling is a great, great evil in our generation. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
Tracy's who on staff with us has been trying to bring about recycling as a church body. And so there she is at the back saying, raising the roof. All right. I realize this is college station. Let's keep it normal. This isn't Austin, but recycling is still good. All right. But that's not the point of the story either. All right. The point of the story is this, that when you and I run across things that are of a health related abnormality, when there is a problem We've got to be careful that we understand the nature of the patient's track records for us to be able to make a healthy and a right and an accurate diagnosis. In this case, because of the test results being printed on recycled paper, there wasn't a clear sense of the patient's history to be able to make an accurate understanding of those test results. They weren't even his test results. What's true in the medical arena, frankly, is true in the spiritual arena as well. That whether it's in our lives or whether it's in someone else's lives, we run across spiritual problems all the time. And the question is, how do we handle them? What do we make of them? How do we understand them, whether they are in our life or in someone else's life? What Hebrews 6 is all about is a a passage written to a people with some spiritual health problems. And what you can see the author do here is he's going to identify the problem in this patient's health, if you will. He's going to write a prescription, and we're going to see this patient's track record and its history as well as as the author takes us through this passage. But if there's ever a case of a passage being misunderstood, I think it's Hebrews chapter 6. If there's ever a difficulty in understanding spiritual problems and how we're to respond to them, I think Hebrews chapter 6 is one of the most mishandled passages that we ever see in our culture, in our day and time, in our churches. What I want to do is walk through you through this incredible passage that I think actually is incredibly way more freeing than it's often taught. It is a challenging passage, but it is a passage that I think actually ends up by the end surfacing for us the incredible nature of the grace of God. By the time we're done, I really want to do three things for you. My hope is threefold. The first is this. I hope you guys will have a better sense of how you and I address spiritual failures and problems, whether they're in our life or whether they're in someone else's life that you'd have a better idea of how to address people's spiritual problems. Because the reality is this audience we're going to see in a minute, we're immature. And the reality is you and I are immature as well. How do we respond to our immaturity and how do we respond to other people's immaturity? Second thing I want to do for you guys this morning by the time we end is I hope that you guys can discover what is often, I think, one of the most frequently seen and preached pastoral errors that is made in the popular preachers that you guys love to listen to by podcast. But a lot of how they respond to spiritual immaturity in people's lives, I think you're going to see is very different than what you're going to see the writer of Hebrews do here in Hebrews chapter 6. I want to surface that for you. I think they identify the right problems, but I think they write a prescription that is not the most accurate nor the most helpful. Third thing I want to do for you guys is resurface for you the incredible wonder of the grace of God. And how the grace of God is one of the most foundational and transformational prescriptions that could ever come in our lives, no matter the spiritual ailment that we face. The grace of God is amazing. As we walk through, I'm going to show you guys the problem in this passage, the disease that this audience is facing. I'm going to show you the prescription, what the author of the writer of the book of Hebrews writes for this problem. And then lastly, I'm going to give you guys some takeaway implications on what do we do. All right, that's where we're going to head. Uh, if you uh, kind of came in in a fog and in a daze, the coffee is in the back. Uh, we're going to jump into the deep end this morning. You're going to need to think well and think hard. So I'm not going to be offended if you just need to kind of move around, go grab you some coffee so you can buckle up because here we go. All right, Hebrews 5, buckle up. Here we go in the deep 
the end of the pool. Grab a floaty if you need to. All right. <laughs> Hebrews 5. What is the problem? What is going on in this book? What is the problem in this passage specifically? You're going to get in a sense as we walk through in the first verses 11 and 12. You're going to get the superficial symptoms. The cough and the cold, if you will. Notice the symptoms, spiritually speaking, in verses 11 and 12. Concerning him, this person, Melchizedek, that the writer of Hebrews referenced in, in verse 10, also who we're going to look at next week in Hebrews 7. Concerning this guy, the writer of Hebrews wants to talk about Melchizedek, but notice the problem, verse 11. Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's going to be difficult to explain. It's difficult material, especially since you've become dull of hearing. For by though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Again, we've been watching the writer of this book address this audience over and over again. This is one of the most unique moments that he does it. And as he writes to them, he says this, I want to speak to you about a man named Melchizedek. And what I want to say to you about Melchizedek is incredibly difficult and incredibly complex. And not only is it difficult and complex, but you aren't ready to understand it and even hear it. And here's why. Because you become dull of hearing. You don't hear well anymore. And not only do you not hear well anymore, but you have in a sense backtracked from moving in maturity to solid food. You've backtracked into infancy and eating milk. You can't even consume and be fed on complex things anymore. It's like a, a elementary school kid who has to go back to Gerber's and applesauce and kind of thing. That's just not what you do. Going to move on to torchies and the good stuff, right? But notice really, as he kind of gets to the symptoms, notice what he says really of the underlying diagnosis. Notice the real problem. Verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. The problem for this audience was that they were still spiritual infants when they should not have been. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I want to give you solid food, the writer of Hebrews says. I want to explain to you about this man named Melchizedek and I'll get to him in chapter 7. But before I can get to him in chapter 7, I've got to deal with a problem in your life. And he says, the problem in your life is this. You no longer can hear well and you've backtracked in what you're understanding and what you're eating on, spiritually speaking, what, the spiritual food that you consume. Instead of maturing to the food, you've backtracked to the milk. And the problem is, as he says in 13, you're an infant. In 14, he says the solid food is for the mature. The problem that this audience in Hebrews faced was that they had surfaced and exhibited a persistent spiritual immaturity. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, (laughs) but you're not ready. In fact, not only are you not ready, but you've backtracked to spiritual infancy. You need milk again. You need the most basic of stuff. You should have been growing, but you haven't. So the question is, if they've diagnosed the problem right, which is spiritual immaturity, the question is, how do you solve spiritual immaturity? Why is, what is the significance of spiritual immaturity? What is the disease that has caused that issue in their lives? And the answers to that are all over the place. I'm going to give you guys three different theological approaches to that question. But before I do that, I want you guys to understand that the different approaches have as much passion and conviction as some of you guys had on the issue that dominated social media this week, which was this, dress. I don't understand it, and it shouldn't be brought up in church, I know. But how many of you guys, actually, when you first saw it, thought it was white and gold? Get a show of hands, all right. As did I. How many of you guys, when you first saw it, thought it was blue and black? All right, which apparently it's actually really blue and black, but I still don't understand what's going on, all right? But people are like as convicted about what they see as if it's like gold truth as anything, right? And how this stupid discussion has dominated social media this week, I don't understand. 
But here's the point. For you and I, according to some scientific research, there are elements in the way that you and I see colors that shapes our lens by which we see our world, all right? Some people see white and gold. Some people see blue and black. And what I want to do for you guys is highlight what is in the back of some people's minds that cause them to project and to see certain theological realities. That there are contributing factors. There are contributing emphases that cause you and I to look at different theological approaches and even interpretations to a passage like this. And what I want to do is give you guys the lay of the land. I want to give you guys some theological landscape as to how different people approach the issue of spiritual immaturity. Why is it that someone who should have been progressing to the point of being a teacher has backslid to the place of spiritual infancy? Why is their faith, why is their uh, spiritual walk not maturing? People have all different kinds of answers for that. And I want to give you guys the three different kinds of answers, all right? The first is what is known as an Arminian approach, okay? Uh, There's a perspective, there's a blend of theology that is known as the Arminian approach. And here's the idea here. They would argue that the reason why someone has not progressed spiritually speaking, the reason why someone is stuck in spiritual immaturity persistently is because they had salvation, but they've lost it. That somewhere along the way, because of their choices, they've lost the gift of salvation that God gave them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They received it, and because of their choices, because of the fact that they've no longer believed Jesus or no longer want to walk with Jesus, just because they chose Jesus, now they can choose to walk away from Jesus once the salvation they have, now they lost it. The Arminian approach would say the reason why they're spiritually immature is because they had salvation, but they've tossed it away and they've lost it, which is why they're spiritually immature. In this theological perspective, contributing the most dominant factor in the lens with which they see the Bible and theology is human will. That human will is the lens that determines everything that they see. That human will is the main issue that, that prevents us from coming to salvation. It's also the main issue that causes us to potentially throw our salvation away. Let me give you guys another one. Um, hey, Tracy, would you mind grabbing me a little bit of water and warming it up? Thank you, Tracy. I appreciate it. Uh, second viewpoint is this. It's Calvinism, right? Uh, this is probably the most uh, dominant and influential theological vantage point for your generation. Every one of your most favorite podcasters, by and large, comes from this vantage point, all right? And here's what a Calvinistic uh, viewpoint would most likely say looking at Hebrews chapter 6, all right? They'd say the reason why this audience is spiritually persistently immature is because it proves that they never actually had salvation to begin with. That the reason why they've not become teachers, the reason why they've not moved on in maturity, the reason why they're persistently spiritually immature because they actually never received salvation. Why would they argue that? Why would they come to that conclusion? Because in Calvinism, the most dominating, contributing, influential attribute of God that drives all of their theology is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is king in Calvinism. Sovereignty determines their entire theological approach. And so in Calvinism, if God is sovereign and if he has given someone the gift of faith, then because he is sovereign and he desires that faith to grow, if it's not growing, then either he didn't give the gift of faith or he's not sovereign. And because he is sovereign in their vantage point, then that gift of faith, if given, will mature. And so if it hasn't matured, the assumption is that it was never given. And so in a Calvinistic viewpoint that is centralized and its entire lens is based on the sovereignty of God, they hit Hebrews 6 and here's what they'll say. Their persistent spiritual immaturity reveals they never had salvation to begin with. Let me give you guys a third approach and one that you've probably not heard of very much. It's this, a free grace approach. 
In Calvinism, they'll argue that they never had salvation. In Arminianism, they'll argue that they lost their salvation. In a free grace approach, which is the way that we as a church here at Grace will actually interpret this passage and a bit of our theological vantage point, it will argue that they have salvation, but there are other reasons why that genuine gift of salvation is not growing. It doesn't mean that they lost salvation, and it doesn't mean that they never had salvation. There's a whole host of reasons why that genuine gift of faith may not be growing. All right? Let me try to flesh that out for you as we move forward, because what you're going to see here as we move forward is this. Uh, You're going to see the writer of Hebrews provide a prescription to the problem, and I think the prescription to the problem says a lot about uh, his belief as to the nature of the problem and the cause of the problem. So what is the prescription here to fix the problem? Notice verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Chapter 6, verse 1, what is the central command here? This is the central thrust. This is the prescription. He says this, let us press on to maturity. What is the problem? Persistent spiritual immaturity, the end of chapter 5, which is why he can't talk about Melchizedek. What is the solution? What is the prescription to that health problem? It's the command to press on to maturity. What does that command to press on to maturity mean? Why is that the solution? Why is that significant? Well, here's the, here's the idea. If they had lost their salvation, then do you tell them to press on to maturity? No. If they've lost their salvation, how can they mature if they don't have salvation to begin with? Tracy, thank you. I've been dealing with a cold and barely hanging on, so I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Trace. If they've lost their salvation, then they can't press on to maturity because they don't have the resources to press on to maturity, right? Or if you're from a Calvinistic viewpoint, if they never had salvation to begin with, then why would you call them to press on to maturity? How do you press on to maturity if you never had the salvation that will allow you to have the resources to press on to maturity? The solution itself highlights, I think, the author believes they have a genuine faith that's just stunted and held back. Okay? Let me give you guys a couple analogies. Uh, a few years ago, one of our uh, college fellows' most embarrassing story was this, that she had showed up in a class in which she was trying to be a teacher and she led a presentation. And what she would do is she would ask the class a bunch of kids questions. Uh, and if they answered correctly, she would throw candy out into the crowd. Problem was this, though. She forgot as she was throwing the candy out. And as it's in midair, she realized, oh my gosh, these kids are blind. All right? <laughs> Horrific moment, right? Horrific moment. And so it just hits them in the face, all right? Which which is not funny, but it reveals the complete audacity of when you throw out an expectation to an audience that they cannot come through on, right? You don't tell an audience to press on to maturity if they never had salvation or if they lost salvation, right? Let me give you guys another illustration. What if you were a high school football coach of a kid who was in high school, 120 pounds on a good day, soaking wet, and you tell him, I want you to spend the entire summer and the offseason lift, uh, uh, lift, lifting weight so that you can be ready to be an offensive tackle by the fall. Ridiculous, right? Absolutely ridiculous. You don't call someone to something that they don't have the subsequent resources to fulfill. To call someone who never had salvation or who has lost their salvation to press on to maturity is an expectation that they cannot lift the weights behind because they don't have the requisite resources to do it, all right? Um, so you only tell someone to press on to maturity who has a real but a stunted and an immature faith. There are all kinds of reasons why someone's genuine faith may not be pressed forward, why it may not be maturing. For example, sin. When you and I commit sin in our lives, our faith struggles to grow and mature. Isolation. 
when you and I don't find Christian community, our faith struggles to mature and it struggles to grow. Also, uh, if we've never been discipled, our faith struggles to mature and it struggles to grow. There's a whole host of reasons why genuine faith may not mature and press on and bear fruit. And the lack of fruit does not necessarily invalidate the possibility of a genuine root to that tree of faith, all right? In fact, what you're going to have happening here is that as he moves on, I'm going to give you guys a few of the uh, steps towards maturity. He's going to call them to press on to maturity. I want to show you guys two of the basic steps. It's kind of a Texas two-step, if you will. I just came up with that, and it's awful, but it's true, all right? Um, Two steps here that the writer of Hebrews is going to give them to press on to maturity. And the first is this in verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. The first thing that the writer of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to leave behind the basics. He's going to leave behind the basics. LOL. I just noticed that. That's really not a good moment for me. All right. I hope that's not how you feel about the sermon. All right. So, um, so the first thing he's going to call them to do is leave behind the basics. I now know why you guys were laughing up here. All right. It's like, what's up? What's going on? All right. Um, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to call them to leave behind the basics. He says, we're going to leave the elementary teaching about the Christ. We're not going to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He's going to leave behind the very essentials of Christian doctrine. He's going to leave behind the very essentials of the gospel. And if someone never had salvation or if they lost salvation, you don't do this, right? If someone is walking in spiritual immaturity because they don't have genuine faith, then you do not leave behind the basics. You share the gospel over and over again, all right? Second thing, though, is what's really difficult for us. It's what happens in verse 3. Notice verse 3. And this we will do. What is this? Again, it's the central command of this chapter to press on the maturity. So, and of this, uh, and we will press on to maturity. And then a conditional statement at the end of verse 3. What is it? If God permits. All right, Trey. Why is it that the second element of this uh, move of maturity is to maintain God's permission? Notice what he says, this we will do. We will press on to maturity if God permits. Do you have anywhere in your mind or anywhere in your grid, spiritually speaking, a category in which God may not allow someone with genuine faith to press on to maturity? Ever thought about that? Well, then I'm allowed to blow your mind because I think that's what Hebrews 6 is going to be saying. That there is a scenario, there is a situation in which God may allow someone with genuine faith not to press on to maturity which God may not permit them to continue to mature. And you're going to get a scenario that unfolds here in verses 4 and on. And notice what he says in verses 4 and on. And this is really where we begin to argue, if you will, about the dress and the color of the dress theologically. All right. Notice, uh, I'm going to argue to you guys that verses 4 and 5 are a bit of a patient history of the audience. All right. Verses 4 and 5, notice who he's talking to. Notice who is in this scenario. Verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened... That word enlightened is the same word he'll use here in chapter 6, verse 4, and he'll also use it in chapter 10, verse 32. And there it also denotes the idea of conversion, that they've been enlightened by the truth, all right? Even more compelling to me is the next phrase he uses there next. And he says, and they have tasted of the heavenly gift. What does it mean that they've tasted of the heavenly gift? That verb there, tasted, is the same word that gets used in chapter 2, verse 9, in which the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus tasted of death. Did Jesus nibble on death? No. He swallowed death whole and full. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here with that same word is that this audience, this person, he has tasted of the heavenly gift full and whole. No nibble, a full consumption. 
furthermore, uh, and he's tasted of not just heavenly gift, but he's been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. That word partaker is also the idea of a partner. He's been made a partner with the Holy Spirit. These aren't superficial, easy to qualify adjectives for this person. Uh, lastly, uh, I've been made partaker of the Holy Spirit, verse five, and has tasted again, tasted full consumption of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If you want to describe someone with genuine faith, I don't know how else you do it here than verses four and five. The scenario here as he's unfolding it is a clear description in my mind of a genuine believer with genuine faith. But where we really begin to differ as to the color of the dress and the theological perspective where the trains begin to move in different tracks is what happens in verse six. Notice the descriptions that continue of this person in verse six and then have fallen away. What does it mean to have fallen away? He's going to describe it a little bit more as he says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. The scenario that is being unfolded here is not just merely a hypothetical scenario. The scenario here that's being unfolded too is not one that this uh, audience would have had uh, a lack of familiarity with. Think about their historical con- con- uh, condition and circumstances. Remember, uh, they've come to Christ. They've been uh, growing and worshiping Christ. And in that setting and in that context, they're beginning to suffer incredible persecution for their faith. Their possessions are being taken away. They're losing their jobs. Uh, they're not yet to the point of bloodshed, the writer of Hebrews will say in chapter 10, but it's getting close. And under that incredible pressure, what is the temptation, what is the difficulty that this audience faces? It's this, that they would turn away from the person of Jesus Christ whom they entered a relationship with because it got too hot and the persecution got too difficult and the pressure got too much and they'd say, you know what? I don't know that Jesus. That Jesus is a kook. He's crazy. I don't know any part of him. And then they could go back into Judaism and they could go back into the synagogue and life would be easy again. He's describing them. This isn't hypothetical. This is this audience who has tasted of the good word of God. They have been enlightened by the truth. They've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but the pressure is, will they stay in it or will they bail on him in front of everybody? And if they bail on him in front of everybody and they go back into Judaism, here's what they've done. They've said to their culture, they've said to their city, they've said to their community, that Jesus, not enough. He's not worth it. I don't want any part of him. And when they step back in the synagogue, it's as if they've re-crucified Christ in front of everybody. And in that condition, the writer of Hebrews is saying, careful audience, you've had an incredible start. You've received an incredible amount of resources. But if you do that, there are consequences. There are consequences. The question is, what are the consequences? It says there in verse 6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That if they make that move, if they publicly say, Jesus is crazy. I want no part of him. The writer of Hebrews is saying that it may be impossible for God to bring them back to repentance. Does that mean that he will not forgive their sins? No. Is the writer of Hebrews saying that they will not have a relationship that is eternal with God? No. Is the writer of Hebrews saying that they will not be in heaven in the future? No. Why? We got an incredible track record of this that goes all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Think about the person that he brought up in chapter 3, Moses. What happened to Moses? If you guys remember the story in chapter 3, uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament and says that Moses could not enter the rest of God. Why? 
because he didn't believe God and he didn't obey God. And because of that, there were consequences and God drew a line and would not let him experience the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Moses's lifetime. Would God fulfill his promises in the future? Yes. Would Moses be spending eternity in the presence of God? Yes. Which is why Moses shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration because he's in the presence of Christ. Moses misses out on the rest. Moses misses out on what we're going to call reward. It's not about heaven. This isn't about heaven. The scenario that unfolds is about what? Verse three. And this we will do. Press on to maturity if God permits. God may not permit every single one of his people to press on to maturity based on their choices. All right. Does that mean that uh, they miss out on heaven? No, this isn't about heaven. A relationship with Jesus Christ comes absolutely freely and absolutely unconditionally. You enter into a relationship with Christ not on the basis of your works. And your works are also not a basis of which that can prove whether you have that relationship or not. Your assurance as to whether you have a relationship with Jesus Christ is expressly on the work of Christ, not on the work that you see in your life. Because if you're anything like me, I have some really good days and I have some days where I wonder. Sometimes my works are a bit of a roller coaster. I have weeks where, man, I'm walking with the Lord and it feels like I'm on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's other weeks where I feel like I'm in a valley and it doesn't look pretty. And I have to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for the same junk that just seems to keep plaguing me and making me struggle. It doesn't get different. It's the same stuff sometimes. Our works are but a roller coaster compared to the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ that causes us to have an assurance of our relationship with him, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of what he's done. If you got into this relationship unconditionally, then you cannot get out of it conditionally either. The work of Christ is sufficient to cover our sins, past, present, and future. There's nothing you can do once you're in his hand to get wrestled out of it. And your lack of work and your failures and your immaturity are not a testament that you don't have a relationship with him at all. It's not the case. Writer of Hebrews continues, I want to give you guys some scenarios as well, because we see this all over the place. Think about Solomon as well. How did Solomon end his life? He multiplied wives, he multiplied horses, and he multiplied soldiers. He did not end his life trusting God. He ended his life in rampant idolatry. He ended his life in persistent spiritual immaturity. Therefore, is he not a believer? Therefore, does it show that he didn't have genuine faith? No. It just shows that he didn't end the race well. That he'll still be in the presence of Christ. How about New Testament? Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and God kills them on the spot. Physically, dead, done. Because they lied about the price of land that they sold to give to the church. All right? It'd be like you giving a, uh, a gift to the church but kind of exaggerating how much it was to your friends to kind of make you look spiritual. And then guess what? God just kills you on the spot. <laughs> That's Acts chapter 5. That's what happens, all right? Do, the, do Ananias and Sapphira end their life well? No. They end it in disobedience and lack of faith. Will they spend eternity in the presence of Christ? I think so. Because how you end your life does not determine whether you had genuine faith or not. All right? Uh, a couple other passages for you guys that are really great to look at. If there's one passage that I encourage you guys to go look at this week, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 15 will highlight a person who is being judged and put before Jesus Christ. And you're going to see two different examples of believers looking at a day of judgment in the, in the face of the person of Jesus Christ. One person will have lived their life well, who will have finished the spiritual race well, and they will receive reward. 
The other person will have nothing to show for the fruitfulness of their life. And guess what? There is a sense of regret, but they still escape through the flames and they still have a relationship with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. So your lack of faithfulness, your lack of fruit, your immaturity, even though it may be persistent, does not undermine that you could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right? If you've trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection. All right, so what do we do? This may be uh, an idea that you've heard maybe for the first time. You may be still processing going, I've never heard this take. I've never heard this understanding of Hebrews chapter 6. Let me give you guys a couple ideas of what I think we need to do as we walk away. First is this, that for some of us, you and I need to wake up. That we need to wake up. That if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the idea that you're going to finish your life well, that you're going to walk with Jesus Christ for a lifetime is not guaranteed. It is not guaranteed. You guys are in college. You got all kinds of Bible studies and fellowship and community and all kinds of opportunities all around you. That's incredibly encouraging. When you graduate and you step into a workplace and you step into a big city, a lot of these kinds of resources aren't here. Tragedies of life come at you and it gets hard. It gets really hard. The question is, will you walk with them for a lifetime? Because as you run the race right now, you think, oh yeah, I'm going to run this thing for a lifetime. But the reality is you are on lap one. You're early in the race. You are early in the race. And one of the reasons why we've done this whole table host format for you guys to be with families is because I want you guys to see people who are five laps out ahead of you and who can show you what it looks like to walk with Christ, not just in this little college window that's sweet, that's amazing, that I think God does some things in our life that is unparalleled for what he may do the rest of your life. But if you only look at this window, then you think running well is going to be easy. But as you get to walk out, walk out life with some couples and some families and you see what they're dealing with and you see the realities of life, you realize, man, running with the Lord for a lifetime is hard. So for you guys, I want to challenge you to wake up that finishing well is not guaranteed, all right? And so the way that you're running now will set up a trajectory for you to run for the rest of your life. Hebrews 6 says, let us press on to maturity. So my challenge for you guys this morning is this. You're making decisions now that will impact you the rest of your life. How you're running lap one sets up for you how you're going to run lap six, seven, eight, twenty, and thirty. All right. For some of you, this isn't necessarily lap one, but you're still early in the race. You're in the first leg of the race. But even though it's early, how you're running now is setting up a trajectory. It's determining how you're going to run down the road. So run hard and run well. And look around you at these table hosts and learn and look at how they're running way down the road from you. Learn from them. Listen to them. Pursue them, which is why we're doing this on Sunday mornings, all right? Second is this. uh, Not just wake up. I want to challenge you guys, relax. Your assurance is rooted in in the work of Christ. This we will do if God permits that your maturity and your continuing to, to run well for a lifetime is not guaranteed. But what is guaranteed is an eternal long relationship with Jesus Christ if you trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection. And nothing you can do got you into that relationship and nothing you can do can get you out of that relationship. It's secure because you're in his hands and his work is sufficient and your work is a roller coaster. And if your assurance rides on your own work and your own life, hang on people because it's going to be a wild ride. See, your assurance rooted in what he has done is a place of security and safety that enables us, even in the midst of our own spiritual health issues, even in the midst of our own immaturity, to know how to respond to it. Which is why my last idea is this. Um, Before I get there, my last idea is this, that I, I think grace 
is the most transformational environment for you and I to press out of immaturity. Think about dating for a minute. Even as you find your own issues coming out in dating, it is the lack of security of that relationship that makes it so hard to not just be honest, but to move forward. But all of a sudden, when there is security and there is a ring on a finger and engagement has happened and there's a promise of marriage, all of a sudden that entire environment of that relationship changes because there's safety and security that is unconditional. When you realize that your relationship with Jesus Christ is not a dating environment, but it is an engagement and marriage environment, it totally changes how you can see your own sin, your own immaturity, and how you can respond to it. That security and grace is one of the most transformational areas and arenas for us to see sin and to deal with sin and deal with immaturity. Judgmentalism, uh, a questioning of whether we even have salvation, actually can very much undermine that. Which is why my last point here for you is this, a caution. Um, I'll tell you guys, there are a, a trend I see in a lot of the popular podcast preachers that you guys like to listen to. And they are amazing communicators of the word of God. They are amazing men and even women of uh, the, uh, uh, that know God, that have been refined by God, that love God dearly. But there is a pastoral tendency I see in them that I want to highlight for you this morning. It's this. That often in their preaching, what I see and what I hear is this, that in the cases of those that are dealing with persistent sin and persistent immaturity, there is a quickness to question whether that person even has salvation to begin with or not. And is rooted out of Calvinistic theological persuasion that says that persistent immaturity highlights that they don't have genuine faith. If someone is posing and they don't have genuine faith, but they're trying to play the game, of course they're not going to be able to mature and walk with God. But there are a whole host of other reasons why genuine faith may not be producing fruit. And to question someone's salvation too fast, too early, too primarily, is really dangerous and is really destructive. And as you look at your own life and as you look at the life of someone else, as you see persistent immaturity, as you see struggles, what's really helpful is a slow and a gentle and a gracious approach that reminds them of the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of the work of Christ, an environment of grace that lets them see their sin and a willingness to disciple them and help them to see what's blocking genuine faith from growing. Maybe their sin Maybe there's a person who's never been discipled, who's never even known what it looks like to walk with God. So no wonder they're struggling. Maybe the person is in isolation. They have no Christian witness. They have no Christian community. No wonder they're struggling. There are a whole host of reasons why genuine believers may not be producing fruit and may not be growing and maturing and pressing forward. Let's explore those first. If I sit down with someone who's struggling, I'm going to clearly share the gospel. But if they've said that they've believed the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and they've trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection, then I'm going to quickly explore the other things of why genuine faith may not be growing. Which even for you, maybe you're here this morning, even in your own lives, you go, man, I'm just not where I want to be. Maybe there's consistent struggles. Maybe there's a, a consistent, persistent immaturity in my life. Well, welcome aboard. We are all works in progress. We're all trying to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the club. And maybe what you need to do is you need to approach your table host, you need to approach someone in your life and just say, help me understand why I continue to struggle. Maybe you need someone to speak into your life honestly and openly to say, here's what I see happening. See, without community, without people that know you, that voice, that word cannot come. 
my hope for you guys as you live in community with each other, as you walk it in community with these table hosts, is that you will have an opportunity for people to speak into your life and to help you sort out who are laps out ahead of you why your faith may not be producing fruit. If you know Jesus Christ, why you may be finding yourself stuck in persistent immaturity, you need community to speak into that. That's why we do what we're doing on Sunday mornings. That's why we put you in this environment, all right? Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll let you guys have the rest of your time and tables. Uh, Lord, we come before you, Lord, with a passage that is incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. And Father, I pray this morning, even if we don't land on the same page on this passage, even if we have some difference of theological points, even our own table hosts who uh, may be thinking differently on this passage, Lord, I pray you give us great conversation. My heartbeat and my hope as we grow in our pursuit of your word and of you is that we wouldn't just mimic and be a parrot of what preachers have told us, but that we would be men and women who are students of your word, who feel confident and who feel able to open it and understand it for ourselves. And I pray that you teach us how to study your word. I pray that our faith would not rest on what someone has told us and what we've inherited, but our faith, our theology, our understanding of you would rest on what we've seen from your word. Teach us how to study it. Teach us how to find, even in the midst of complexity and diversity of theological viewpoint, help us to approach those conversations with humility, with compassion, with a willingness to listen and to not be divisive. Lord, that's our heartbeat. That's our hope this morning, Lord, that you would stretch us, that you'd grow us, that whether there's persistent immaturity in our lives or in others, Lord, you'd help us to know how to respond to it. You'd help us to know where to step and where not to step. And that you'd help us to understand that your grace is sufficient, that your grace is wonderfully transformational and is wonderfully foundational for us, Lord. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, the rest of your morning is uh, as at tables. And so your table hosts have a series of questions. We're going to walk back through this passage a little bit. I'll tell you guys again, 20 minutes, not sufficient for this discussion. So you guys might be just kind of cracking the lid on this thing. And again, people are going to have difference of viewpoint on this. We want you guys to approach it with humility and with compassion and diversity of viewpoint is okay. We want that, all right? You guys, you guys have a great discussion. We'll be praying for y'all.